Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Working Wife Happy Life. To say that these past few weeks have been intense is a massive understatement. With the incredible outpouring of support for the Black Lives Matter movement, both in America and around the globe, as people of all races and ages cry out for justice, as hate crimes continue to occur, both overtly and subtly, we should all be asking ourselves what it is that we can do. Doing the deep personal work of questioning our own privilege and determining what our role is in the solution. I plead with this community and everyone you know to open your eyes and your hearts to the truth that is happening around us. There are so many more peaceful protests than the violent ones, but those stories may not be the ones that are sensationalized in the media. This has been part of the systemic issue for centuries, the way anger and hurt and frustration is portrayed in the media versus the reality of how it is being organized and mobilized. I have to believe there is more good than evil, and these are tipping point times where we must all ask ourselves what it is that we can do to be part of the solution. For me personally, I've donated to causes such as Black Lives Matter. I've educated myself and continue to educate myself with many resources, such as resources from activists like Rachel Cargill. I begin to read the incredible book, White Fragility, and I've been discussing race and privilege at length with both of my children. I've posted an incredibly helpful resource in my bio on Instagram for anti-racism resources for white people. It's been making the rounds on social media and I urge you to take a look. I've reached out to my friends whom I know are hurting and angry and scared. We all play a role and it is on all of us to do something to eliminate the injustice, discrimination, and hate that has been breeding on U.S. soil and around the globe for centuries. I plead with you all to do something, find something meaningful, correct those around you when they say and do offensive things, get into the uncomfortable discussions, defend those who are not with you to defend themselves, or those who are beside you and are too scared or uncomfortable or threatened to defend themselves. Talk to your kids about racism, and if you're not, Realize that that in and of itself is a privilege to not have to teach them how to deal with life because of the color of their skin. The best thing we can do right now is shape the minds and hearts of the future. There must be more love than hate, so let's create that reality. And while there are so many parts of life in general that seem woefully out of control, today's episode, we talk about ways we can control our own lives, both with personal finances and self-care. And who better to enlighten us with her perspective than the self-described finance nerd, hush money podcast hostess, former anchor on CNN, CNBC, Bloomberg, and New York Times bestseller author of Rich Bitch, Boss Bitch, and Becoming Superwoman, Nicole Lappin. Throughout this conversation, Nicole shares tons of insights and tips to think about when it comes to managing our finances and our mental health. The two are so deeply intertwined. Despite Nicole's impressive success and a highly accomplished education to boot, she was not immune to burnout and the need to deal with past trauma in order to actually survive. She ultimately suffered a mental, emotional, and physical breakdown that stemmed from severe burnout and landed her in a psych ward. She opens up about her deeply traumatic past and her journey through therapy in a Forbes article titled, How to Prevent Burnout in the New Year. We don't get into these details during our discussion as she's been very open about it in other outlets, but I encourage you to read her work if you're not familiar. 
She brings her matter-of-fact style to many how-tos in life, and particularly how to learn from your past to create the future you deserve. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nicole. I am so glad to see you again. We met, Nicole, you and I met, God, it seems like forever ago, but it was only a few months ago because it was right before all this chaos hit when you came into Google for your new book, Becoming Superwoman, which was- It was, was that- right before all this stuff happened, I think. I think it was, so too. We were in the cafeteria and I think, well, first of all, I adore you so much and it's so good to see you. Um, <laughs> But when we saw each other IRL, uh, not URL, in the cafeteria, I was like, should I go to Google Seattle? I was continuing on the book tour, and then I was supposed to go to Google in San Francisco. Um, And it was like, should I go? Should I not go? Are people working from home? So it was right at the start of all the chaos. Yeah, I remember we were having that conversation. It was right around your birthday, and you were about to get on a plane in like two days, and I'm like, don't do it. Uh, but it was weird because at that time, the West Coast was where things were crazy versus right. now New York. Anyway, so it's just so I, mean, I didn't go good at all. I didn't to go to that. anything, everything, everything, all the things canceled, all the things. Well, I mean, I've been so impressed by the way that you've pivoted um, in this time. And I know we were talking a bit before, but from a creative perspective and an output perspective, it's so hard to, I think, identify value in a time of crisis and say to yourself, like, okay, this is what I need to be putting my time and my energy toward. Um, And I want to introduce your work a little bit because I think it's really important to explaining, you know, your pivot and kind of how you've dealt with the past couple of weeks uh, or months, I guess it is. But, um, you know, you've written three best-selling books about one, money, two, career. I hope I didn't screw that order. No, rich bitch, boss bitch, you got it. And then the third about becoming superwoman. And I think it's not what most people would think when they read Becoming Superwoman. Can you share with me a little bit of that arc of your three babies? Wow, I don't have actual babies, but I never expected to have three book babies and potentially more on the way. I was a TV person for a million and a half years uh, on network news, anchoring on CNN and CNBC and Bloomberg. And I was like, I need a book. Like, I need to send something for Hanukkah. This is what every person on TV (laughs) does. So write a book. And then I thought I would get a ghostwriter and like check the box and call it a day and move on. And then I hired a ghostwriter originally and I fired them and I tried to hire another and I fired them too. And I was like, nope, this doesn't work. It actually has to be my voice talking about money in an accessible way because I was tired of talking to old rich white dudes about money. And I wanted to talk to my former self. Like I'm the least likely person to know anything about finance or business. I grew up in a super broken home first generation American, like never talked about any of this stuff growing up and just had to figure it out the hard way in the school of hard knocks. And I felt like nobody was talking to that girl. I felt like there was a big void in that area. And the only way for me to accomplish it was like to write every word myself in the same way that I would talk to you right now or 
over mm-hmm. drinks when hopefully we can do that soon. And I never expected it to be the success it was. So Rich Bitch hit the New York Times bestseller list right away. Like it sold out. I was like, what is happening? I actually had super low expectations for it, um, which is one of two truisms on Wall Street, buy low, sell high, and it's better to beat low expectations, which also translates to life. Mm-hmm. So I had super low expectations and I called the book Rich Bitch. Like people are either going to love it or hate it. I knew yeah. there was no gray area. And thankfully, they did the former. They loved it. And all of a sudden, I became an author with a second book, Boss Bitch, two years later, exactly. And then my, which is how to take control of your career and everything I also learned at the MBA of Hard Knocks. And then Becoming Superwoman happened two years, a little bit more after that, when I totally burnt out. And I... Mm -hmm worked so hard for the 20 years uh, before that book, really. Like I started on the air when I was a teenager and I self-prescribed not drugs or alcohol, but work to hide from, you know, some of the upbringing that I alluded to. And it ultimately kicked my butt. And I felt like I contributed in some way to this whole like lean in hustle culture. And I have always been honest with my reader. It's the only way I think to get this stuff that's typically really boring and wonky to resonate and talk about like really embarrassing stories. The the most embarrassing, the better, because I'll go first. I'm like, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Somebody has to go first with these tricky conversations. And so Becoming Superwoman happened after a total mental, emotional, physical breakdown that stemmed from burnout. And I thought, gosh, if I am going through this, then so many others are going through it. And I didn't expect it to be so zeitgeisty uh, when it came out. I didn't expect like Michelle Obama to come out when she had her book, which by the way, was becoming, I had a whole panic attack when her (laughs) book came out. I was like, I called my book agent. I called my publisher. I was like, do we have to change the title? It's becoming, and she's like, we're becoming superwoman. She's becoming, they're like, no, it's great for SEO. People will type in becoming, you'll pop up too. I was like, ride those coattails (laughs) yeah she came out while she was promoting it and she was like that lean in stuff doesn't work and yeah it became you know a conversation that I didn't expect we all needed to have in such a big way and you know I was continuing on with the book tour when we had our google talk of course but everything stopped and I think the world also burnt out I think we were just in overdrive and at a tipping point. And, you know, I think in some ways, everything needed a break. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it that way, of course, you know, not to discount the economic turmoil, the deaths, like the global pandemic, obviously, that's happening, uh, and the and the seriousness of it. But for those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to work from home and do to be able to, you know, continue with quasi normal life, you know, in some ways, look at it as a, as a breather, as a break that, you know, going into it, I had to really ask myself, do I want to take a pause during this time and like ride this one out? Uh, I was almost on the verge of burnout yet again from promoting my Mm -hmm. last book. And I was like, you know what? 
maybe I'm going to sit this one out. Like maybe I'm just going to take a break and I'm really going to like take a break and not pretend like I'm going to work. I'm just going to intentionally peace out and try to take care of myself and try to rejuvenate. Or I could be a voice for this crisis and help people navigate these financial times. And I took probably five days or so to, to really grapple with that. I didn't post anything on social media. I told my team, we all discussed every day, like what we were going to do. You know, I didn't know if I could keep the employees I had on. And so, you know, I chose to be of service during this time, but it was a choice. And I think it's a choice that everybody has. Like not everybody can be a leader during this time. And in fact, by definition, you can't be, not everybody can be a leader, but it's important to be intentional with what your role is, whatever you decide it to be. I mean, there's so, thank you. There's so much in there. And I, and I think what I love about you is you've created this kind of benchmark for yourself where you know when you're slipping dangerously close to that discomfort that you've lived through and and worked through from the very bottom all the way back up. And I think from a society perspective, like that's what it seems like, whether it was, you know, when I first started working and you got a BlackBerry and all of a sudden it was like this freedom that you actually could respond to work without being at work. And that was 20 some years ago. And, and we've just been building, 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 going faster, faster, more, more since that time. And it's really kind of a beautiful thing in some ways to, like you said, despite all the trauma and drama and heartache and, and loss of life and loss of uh, economy, to have an opportunity to reset and intentionally rebuild where you know you can add that value versus trying to keep up with something that really wasn't sustainable. How do you kind of like... What what are some of the things that you feel like are indicators for you when you're slipping close to that edge? Because, I mean, obviously it's Mental Health Awareness Month. I think what we're seeing for a lot of people right now is the stage of like, okay, March was really hard and really uncertain. April was really like still very dramatic and very crisis evoking and lots of anxiety there. Now we're in May and it's like, Right. And like what's coming and how long does this go on? You know, there's this kind of like normalcy to it. And and there's a lot of like adaptive um, behaviors. But how do we get like how do we become intentional right now about what we're doing to help set us up for the long haul that this is going to be in terms of, you know, working remotely or producing intentional content? Um, being that voice, kind of what are some of your guiding principles? You know, when I was writing Becoming Superwoman, I have a whole guide for this in normal times. I could not have imagined, like any of us couldn't have imagined, uh, you know, what the world would look like now. And so a lot of the things I suggested are obviously hard to do, you know, having community, seeing people, um, doing self-care things, like those things are impossible. Having you know, the litmus test of going on vacation, if you come back and if you still feel disengaged and you still feel awful, you know, that could be a sign of burnout. We can't do those things now. And so for me, I've tried to adjust 
a lot of my financial advice, um, a lot of all of my advice to this new normal. And I've thought really seriously about what that is. And, and truthfully, it's almost contradictory to some of the advice I had before, because, you know, I don't think we should go back to the way we were, you know, a lot of people are like, let's just get back to that. No, we're going to get back to something different when things do open up. And I think for the burnout and because it's real, even now, um, even though we're working from home and, you know, assuming that, you know, you're able to do so, I think that figuring out how to digitize some of those things will be really helpful. So like self-care back in the BC times and before Corona, you know, I would often say like, yeah, ladies, like I'm all down for a deep tissue massage and a mani-pedi like all day, every day. But I think self-care is more than just that. It's more, you know, it's not surface. It's like going to trauma therapy, which I do, uh, going to the doc, taking care of yourself in a, you know, more, um, meaningful way. So I've had zoom calls, which I've always had actually, because my psychiatrist is in Los Angeles. And so even before this, she has a practice that's for women and by women and, and working women and like women who can't even take the time if they're in LA to drive the 30 minutes and back. And so I've continued that. And, you know, I can tell the, the signs, you know, when I'm on social media all the time, I think I really try to monitor that, you know, when I find myself going down and saying, well, how does everybody else have it figured out? First of all, they do not, of course. Um, but I spend too much time on Instagram. Like I know I need to put the weapon down, uh, put it in another room. And, you know, because they think it's just like a pacifier. We're just constantly connected to it. And we're not connecting to ourselves when we do that. Yeah, no, I agree. I've long held that I think self-care is misconstrued as pampering. Like those are two different things. I love me a pampering and I miss it tremendously right now. Same. I just want to be pet everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Like I want someone to do all, like I I miss my reflexology and all the obnoxious things that I used to be able to do at the drop of a hat. But there's, there's the self-care of like, just knowing when you need a minute, you know, so being pulled in so many directions, like you're saying, put the phone in the other room you know, whether it's like drawing a bath, if you have a bathtub, which I have a very uh, shallow bathtub, which is my kid's bathtub right now. And it is probably one of the worst, as far as bathtubs go, it's got to be the worst bathtub, but it's mine and I will get in it and I will enjoy that bath nonetheless, even though my my arms and everything's still sticking out, but (laughs) it's like that moment that I know I'll have my, my salts and I'll have everything else going. And, you know, those are the things where it's just you've got to say, like, this is going to be a mini indulgence that is going to make me feel like realigned. And that is the self-care of like just kind of getting back to that point where you feel like you're back in your own skin. Yeah. And I think in order to really tell when you feel misaligned is to figure out what alignment is and to figure out what success is and to figure out what balance is. Like when people say I feel off balance or I feel off budget even, I'm like, did you even have a budget? 
Did you even mm-hmm. have a definition of balance? And I suffered from this for even my last book. I never defined what success was for that book. And so I never felt like I had it. And so going in, you know, now that I'm continuing in the saga, I thought I, you know, tied my book tubes, but I did not. I all of a sudden got pregnant with twins. Uh, so Woo! more to come on that. But, you know, I, I really... Um, went into the process saying just more, 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 more. Like it never was enough. I de- never had a metric for sales, which I should have. I never had a metric for media, which I should have, because it was like one talk show or whatever, which, you know, I was lucky enough to have so much interest, high class problems. I fully get it. But it was, I was just ravenous. Like I found like I wasn't successful because I didn't actually define what success was. I just kept moving the goalpost. And I think when we assume we're off balance, you know, according to other people who are baking banana bread and tie-dyeing stuff right now, you know, you have to really say like, is that my goal? Do I want to make banana bread? Do I want to tie-dye stuff? whatever you want to do, like be really clear about that. And if you're doing those things, you are on balance for you. That's what it looks like for you, not somebody else, not some, you know, mommy blogger or whatever, like just for you. And I think if we don't set those parameters, we're going to inevitably um, feel shitty about ourselves. Yeah. And you, you've done so much research on this topic of burnout which um, I don't know if I shared this when we met, but I mean, many, many years ago when I was in college, I actually studied psychology and sociology and worked for a bit in that field and it completely drained me. And so I turned the intention of the rest of my studies from the actual psychology and sociology to uncovering why that industry has such high levels of burnout. Um, so we do share a bit of that intrigue about what, yes. you know what causes this and how do we get through it. And I, I believe you had a very particular slant in terms of the results you saw for women and burnout. Can you share a little of those insights? Totally. And I think we're cut from the same cloth in many ways, <laughs> but I think we also both look at something like a squishy topic and want to make sense out of it like with numbers and charts and like, I want a system and a process. And that's going into the last book. That's what I wanted. There was a lot of woo woo stuff about meditation and this and that. I was like, Nope, I need a plan. (laughs) Like I need step-by-step process. And that didn't exist. So I documented everything as I went along and I tried to, you know, do it in the same way as I did my other books, a 12 step plan. Like the first step is admitting you have a problem like other recovery programs and we all have problems. We all have problems and the only problem we can't recover from is the one we don't admit. And so I continued on with my quest to, you know, bring it back to the data, bring it back to the science and try to make sense of this in the way my brain worked. So I did the largest study ever done on women and burnout. And I found that women were reaching burnout and breakdown levels, you know, in the 80% 80% range. They, they obviously, you know, um, responded to that, um, anonymously. And then the second thing I asked, which I found most fascinating was if they thought the pace of their lives was sustainable. And I think half of people did. 
So basically they're saying we're drowning, but it's all good. Nothing to see. <laughs> we're cool. Like we're, we're, you know, crushed, but like, whatever, we're just going to keep going. And there's a huge difference, Bethany, between swimming and just not drowning. Like right. swimming is living in a fulfilled way, not drowning. That's, that should be unacceptable. Even if it's not a full breakdown, you know, you could say like, Nicole, like I'm not girl interrupted level, like you got to, but an a full, unfulfilling life where you're just not drowning is not a life you should want to feel, you know, proud of on your deathbed. Like I think right. of that a lot where I'm like, what, what would I regret not being brave enough to do? Um, how, how would my future self look at this? And for me, that, that really works. And I sometimes even as morbid as the sound, as morbid as the sounds, think of my eulogy, <laughs> like yeah. what would people say? And you know, I mentioned in Becoming Superwoman, like, if you do this exercise, you know, and if you say she was a congresswoman who fought for children's rights or whatever, like, are you moving toward that? Are you not? And so that was, that was a helpful exercise to me. And to also find the purpose and the why behind what I was doing um, was really helpful. And the way I did that is when you I'm a writer, of course. And so maybe this doesn't work for everybody, but when you start writing what your purpose is, just start writing like stream of consciousness on the, on the page, vomit on the page. When you start tearing up, that's when you found your purpose. And that was a lot of other studies that we can go on and on for many, many podcasts to talk about that. I dug into that because money without meaning is just paper. And that was the, that was like a very important indicator for ultimate happiness and success. And the, and the big ones were, you know, having meaning, having community, doing gratitude. I feel the difference totally right now when I do gratitude and not, and I actually just picked it up a few days ago and I feel 10,000% better than I did when I didn't do it because you're training your brain to start looking for those moments yeah. and it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy, you yeah. know, and then exercise meditation, you know, those are the things that have been studied time and again to actually create this elusive happiness or balance. Yeah. Well, you need to find ways that you can actually get the stress chemical out, right? So exercise or like you're saying, even writing it, sometimes just writing things down and seeing it in front of you and being like, do I really believe that? Or do I really feel that way? Um, I did a really cool training once where they asked us just a five minute introduction and they videotaped you, which is horrifying for people like me that are not used to being videotaped and nobody videotapes anyway, but you know what I mean? And uh, watching the video back, they asked you to describe your team, your work, what are you most passionate about? Tell us about your family and watching your expression change based on what you were talking about was fascinating mm. because it really showed where, like you're saying, when you tear up at that part that you're writing, it really showed where your energy comes from. Yeah. And then when you look at kind of how you're dividing your energy toward the day based on those factors, like how misaligned are they? And so it actually, like, again, going back to data and charts and graphs, like it actually makes it really clear it's not easy work, but when you have that goal of this is the work that I need to do, 
it makes it really clear where you should emphasize. Um, but it is that the work on yourself is kind of the hardest. And I feel like that's the part where, you know, interestingly now, I think people are looking again, like I said at the beginning, like looking at rebuilding their life and what it means and and what has value and what should take what has now actually become even more precious time. And I think there's, you know, I have a lot of hopes for us in the future of coming out of this in terms of, you know, this great neutralizing effect that has really brought everyone into a similar boat, even though the circumstances are very different. And when you talk about burnout or grief or pain or loss, I think there's a lot of people that like measure it, right? Like, so, you know, you know, you caveat like, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm really feeling loss of X, Y, Z, but of course it's not as bad as people that have this loss and that kind of measurement of grief and loss. What's your opinion on that? Because it's such a tough thing and, and, and you can't have empathy and know literally what every single person is going through, but I do think you have to take care of yourself and value that you will have grief and loss, even if it looks different from somebody else's. Yeah. And if it's grief and loss for you and it, and it's sad and hard and traumatic, it's grief and loss and trauma for you. And it doesn't actually matter how that compares to what my trauma was. Like my trauma is super cinematic. And so you could be like, my life sucks, but it didn't suck as bad as Nicole's, you know? But if it sucks, like that should be unacceptable for you to just power through as well. And the most encouraging part of my research was that EQ is so within your power to change. It is so hard to change your IQ, but your emotional intelligence is in your power. You can learn skills, which I did. Like I came from, I was dealt such a terrible hand. I played it the best I could. You know, I came from like not third base. I came from the bleachers, maybe in the alleyway by the trash can. You know, if I could do it, I needed to reparent and reteach myself all the most basic skills. I did something um, that really changed my life called DBT, which is dialectical, dialectical behavioral therapy. Say that 10 times fast. Um, I don't Lady think I Gaga. Can say it once. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Gaga recently had an amazing chat with uh, Oprah that I watched on the WW tour where she talks about the power of DBT and thank you, Selena Gomez, for talking about it. Like all of a sudden it's gotten more popularity, which I love because it helped me in more ways than any other career thing did to impact my career. I could have networked my butt off. I could have done all the right things, you know, typically associated with your career. But when I wasn't good myself, nothing else mattered. And so DBT taught me how to have emotional regulation, how to find interpersonal effectiveness, how to process my thoughts before I pounced. You know, we never forget, we never regret, I should say, a workout. We never regret a pause. And I never even learned that. I never learned mindfulness te techniques. And they're so simple, yeah. but they're not easy. And so I had like workbooks and all sorts of stuff where I really taught myself the most basic skills. And I had to, because I, you know, all families are a little messed up in their own special way, but 
you know, I didn't learn any of this stuff. And, you know, even if you did in your family, there's always more to learn and there's always more EQ that you can improve. That was the most encouraging part of it. It was, you know, it was an injury, not an illness that I couldn't recover from that, you know, I'm referring to the PTSD that I suffered from for years and, and having the skills to, parent myself to get through that was like something that I could get down with because I was and I say this only you know it doesn't matter being valedictorian in my high school and college will get me nothing basically in life now but it shows that I really liked to study right like that and 350 will get me a latte when that when we open back up um but I love studying like I wasn't good at many things but homework was one of them and I was like gosh I can do homework and fix this amazing I'll be like the valedictorian of the outpatient psych ward perfect <laughs> I'm on it Tracy Flick front row well it's things it's things that you can control right so it's like oh okay well this this part is within my control so I have a a a hand in its outcome where there's so much of life that does actually just happen to us and we just have to deal with it like your, your beginnings. Um, but I just, I love that you're so open about this stuff because it's so important, particularly because you have a public persona. And I think before you started talking about these things, I didn't know you, but my guess is that you know, in some ways people are seeing this as like, oh, okay, that's what success looks like. And she's got it figured out and I can do those things. And, you know, we talk about the lean in movement and, you know, some of the damage that that concept has done. But at the same rate, I don't think it's like, I'm glad it happened because it happened so that we could have this reaction and this evolution of the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. If we didn't have that impetus at the time that was perceived and, and digested in a certain way, we wouldn't have continued down this path and this journey to have the conversations we're having now of like, you know, like you're saying to parent yourself, like you can be the mom to yourself that you didn't have. And you can do that. And you can, and you should do that to care for yourself the way you would care for somebody else. Yeah. And part of what I learned in the DBT, the dialectical part was that two things can be equal at one time. You can, you know, love your husband and be really pissed at him. You could hate your really? job right now, but love what you do, right? <laughs> like, it's not absolute. Like, you can have a picnic, but you have to accept the bugs and the dirt along with the wine and the strawberries. And for me, there was this balance of forgiving my former self, for what she didn't know, but also a little bit of tough love and saying like, I forgive you former self. Like, I'm not going to hate on you and be a mean girl to you, but it's actually not acceptable moving forward. I can do the tools. Like, you know what? I was never the girl that was like, you know, I blame all my, you know, craziness growing up. Uh, like I blame um, that for not producing or not, you know, excelling in certain things. Like I didn't, it happened. You kind of have to accept it. And then, you know, you have to say like, well, I didn't have those tools, but now I can have those tools. Yeah. You know, it's, you're, you're bringing up. So what I love about your work and your body of work that you've produced is you're, you're marrying these, you know, financial health and well-being with, professional health and well-being and now personal health and well-being. And 
and they're so connected. They're so, it's such a kind of outlook driven part of our lives, right? We're all affected by those three things, regardless of our situations. And I really, I, I think a lot of people are thinking about their finances in the same way they're thinking about their life once we return to normalcy. So I know I've spoken to a lot of women uh, that I work with who, you know, we're just, we're all spending less because we're not going out or the kids aren't in extracurricular activities or, you know, shopping took on a whole new meaning in terms of essential and non-essential. Um, and I think it's given people an opportunity to financially think about their lives a lot differently, um, which can lead to a lot of better physical and mental health when you feel like your finances are in order. Kind of what are your guiding principles right now? Because this is really the root of your uh, your beginnings in terms of finance and would love to hear your perspectives on it. Yeah, you can't control the global economy. You can only control yourself and your own little economy. You know, you, you mentioned something that reminded me of what's on my phone right now that you can see. And the quote is, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And that is what you say in a lot of you know recovery programs. And it's such a good reminder to me to say, like, I can't control this pandemic. I can't control you know, what had happened to me, um, growing up, um, I can't control those things, but I can control some other things. And so I think realizing that we may have to go into debt, we may have to mess up our credit a little bit. Um, I would never normally say this, like it's raining, use the rainy day fund. It's pouring. Like, don't be mad at yourself for that. But you know what? Like we're going through this insane, unexpected time. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're bad with your money. If you need to get into debt to get through this, we'll figure it out and we'll fix it on the other end. And I would have never normally said like, don't pay off your debt. Um, first, I would say now, you know, if you don't have an emergency fund pay down the minimum. And so everything has just like flipped around um, yeah. based on what's going on. And so typically I say, create a spending plan like you would an eating plan that allows yourself small indulgences so you don't end up binging later on. And normally I would have said, I broke it down into the three E's, which I love alliteration. So essentials, end game, and extras. So 70% roughly, I would say goes to the essentials, your food, your housing, your transportation, all that jazz. 15% goes to the end game, the future, Bethany, the retirement, the investments, all of that good stuff. And then 15% goes to the extras. So many pennies when we used to be able to do that, lattes, all those things. Because if you don't allow yourself those things, you'll end up binging like in a deprivation diet. Yeah. Now I say, you know, there's so many ways to negotiate your bills. There's so many relief programs out there. There's no shame in the unemployment or SNAP game, which is food stamps if you need it. And so I would say, try to get those down. Also like, you know, car insurance is based on how many miles you're driving. We're not driving a lot right now. So it's your money. You might as well fight for it right now and try to get down, try to get that down to 65%, try to increase your end games or your savings to 30% of whatever you're bringing in. So it could be, you know, from the stimulus, it could be from child support, alimony, it could still be from a job. It could be from a side hustle. It could be from PPP or, 
you know, grants or whatever. So like whatever you're bringing in right now, uh, I would say figure that out first, like create your own personal balance sheet. And then, you know, 5% for the extras, like get that tracksuit if you want it. Like we can't do a lot of extras right now. And so that's already, you know, protecting ourselves from ourselves, which is, you know, positive in some ways financially, because like, it reminds me of when I would tell people if they got a raise to try to live by the lifestyle they had before, like their life is presumably pretty good. And so that having, you know, more money doesn't necessarily mean like big baller shot caller. It means like taking some of that money and investing more of it, you know, growing your money, getting to a place where you don't have to work and your money works for you. So I think some of that can translate now where by like, we don't need all the designer crap in our closet. Do we? Like we actually didn't need a manicure. And we didn't need a lot of the things that we thought we did. And it kind of doesn't matter in the scheme of we're going to get existential. Um, You know, it doesn't really matter. And so I hope that some of that perspective carries over. Yeah, because I think there's, you know, whatever economic band you're in, that that, uh, kind of lust for things carries through, right? It doesn't matter. There's something very shiny, and I think there is you know, it's, we're in a capitalist society. We are materialistic. We have the Instagram glory of other people's lives and that envy. And I think it's something we've all been guilty of. And now, I mean, I'm doing laundry all the time because we're all wearing the same three things. And all of my athleisure wear is like threadbare <laughs> because I just keep walking the same things over and over. And I'm like, oh, none of this really actually matters. Um, and, and it's, it's freeing in a way. I think it kind of, you know, just gets back to even the grocery store. I mean, I, we used to go almost every day of just get this, pick that up, get some of this. Now we're going once a week because I don't want to be exposed any more than that. And I feel lucky to be able to do it, but I'm going and I'm getting everything we need for a week and we just make it work. And it's just, there's a, there's a awareness of it that I think, um, it's, it's mindful spending, if you will. It's kind of really yeah. bringing those things together. Yeah. There, you know, I talked a lot about this in my last book where there's mindfulness for eating, there's mindfulness for parenting. Like there's not a lot that's been written about mindfulness in business and mindfulness financially. And I think that hopefully I can help bridge the two things because the more mindful you are in business, I just think the better decisions you're making. Um, and the same thing financially. So if you can keep up some of these you know, habits of going to the grocery store, figuring it out, um, I think that will just benefit all of us uh, yeah. in the aftermath when we do get out. So we, we started this conversation where, you know, you were sharing kind of a bit about uh, why finance was so important to you to just kind of have a bigger voice there where you had heard the, the, you know, the voice in the industry was just not representative of you. You didn't feel like it was speaking to you. Um, hopefully I'm not putting too many words in your mouth, but you recently had a tweet that I loved about the U S treasury. Um, And it's so classic because unless you know the background of why you said it, like just, will you explain it to our listeners? Cause I loved it. 
Totally. I have been putting out some savage tweets for sure. Um, of telling the U.S. government and the Treasury to cut out their lattes and their avocado toast to fix <laughs> the government spending and the issues and the debt. Um, you know, and that's just a poke at some of the financial advice that didn't resonate with me before I went into this full time, which, by the way, I started my company during the last recession. And so, you know, it can be a great time. Huge companies, Disney, GM, GE, Trader Joe's have started during tough economic times. You know, I did it. I started a company called Recessionista originally, which was uh, not ideal when the recession ended uh, because then I pivoted to what became Rich Bitch. And so I was like, yay, economy, boo for my business. Um, and so I knew early on what, it, and I pivoted 10,000 times. And so that's what we do as entrepreneurs, as, you know, people who are really focused on having a career, not just going to work. Um, and so I think I didn't feel represented. You're absolutely right. You didn't put words in my mouth. You said it probably more eloquently than I could have. Um, because, you know, the peanuts gallery of so-called financial experts were like, don't buy a latte, buy a house. And I was like, oh my God, this is terrible advice. First of all, it doesn't work for me. And by the way, like you can rethink all the advice. I think you should, especially with finances, but in general, and just stop and think if it works for you. And you know, maybe not buying a latte works for you. And maybe um, buying a house works for you. Mazel tov. I mean, but first have that moment that's so, so, so important where you stop and say like, just because it's always been done this way doesn't mean that's the way it needs to be. And I wanted to take that pause in the same way, like I make the analogy of becoming vegetarian. When I was 11 or 12, I stopped to ask myself like, so do I like meat? My family ate me, all the things. And I said, no, I don't like me. I'm not going to eat meat. But I could have actually also said, yes, I'm going to eat meat. But it's that questioning moment that I think is so, so important. And that was missing in the dialogue. And I think, you know, nothing is gospel when it comes to financial advice. And the financial gods are not going to come down and get you if you buy a latte and you rent. And I think that was my main message. Even what I say, like, rethink what I say. And just as long as you get to that, like, am I a vegetarian or do I want to buy a latte moment where you're really figuring it out for what you want to do, not what your family did, not just because you had a vacation every year means you have to have that now, or maybe you want more, maybe you want less. I don't know because you had a housekeeper doesn't necessarily mean you need to have that now. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I have no idea. Just don't assume because it's always been done that way for you and your family or your upbringing or in a macro sense is the way it needs to be done for you. Yeah, I think that's such an important message. It's also so belittling because it's like that, like that's going to solve your whole problem if you're not buying a latte. And it's, and obviously it's targeted toward women. And it's like, okay, if you're a college student and you have $10 of spending money a week, then yeah, don't buy a fucking latte. <laughs> that's actually a problem. But it's not like this universal guidance that's going to solve your wealth and investment strategy for the rest of your life. And I just feel like it's part of this messaging that's been in the financial institutions toward women, um, frankly, that has been so damaging, I think, and so intimidating for so many women to get involved. 
Totally. It's like this place of deprivation instead of aspiration. And I make the analogy to, and this is why I don't talk in like wonky wonk stuff. I just, you know, I came in as an outsider and I felt like the language was so tricky. And so I look at it like a regular diet. If you allow yourself a Hershey's kiss, you're not going to end up noshing on a big old hunk of chocolate cake in the middle of the night because you're so hungry and so deprived. Like as soon as you get on those crash diets, they just don't work, period, end of story. And the same thing goes for your finances. Like when people say to me in the beginning of the year, Nicole, you'd be so proud of me. I cut out the latte or I cut out the blah, blah, blah. I'm not doing anything. It's doom and gloom and, you know, coupon clipping and looking in the couch for coins. And like, okay, let's see how long that lasts. And come April or whatever, they're like, I got a Gucci purse because I didn't buy a latte. I'm like, girl, if you would have just bought your latte, you know, kept something good in your life that you're working so hard for, maybe you wouldn't feel the need to binge on something else later on. And I think it's about having a sustainable plan. That's why I call it a spending plan instead of a budget, which feels scary, like, like an eating plan, you know? It's something that's sustainable. It's something that allows you those small indulgences so you don't end up binging later on. And yeah, don't focus on the latte and the avocado toast. You're right. Like if you really don't have money, don't buy those things. But like focus instead on the best ways to, you know, grow your money and what is compound interest and what is your credit score. And all those things are going to have a massive, massive, massive effect on your financial picture way more than the fucking latte. Right. And, and, and right back to what you said toward the beginning too, like, what is your, why are you saving up to buy a home? Are you saving up to go back to school? Are you saving up to put a child through school? Like what is the driving force? And the more you remind yourself of that versus getting, you know, money is such a, uh, emotion inducer, right? Like everyone has a different relationship with money, whether you have it or not. Um, it's just a very personal thing. And, and, I found for myself in the beginning years of my marriage where my husband is very uh, like rigid and on top of our finances in a way that he, you know, he does a monthly, monthly budget sheet. He does a monthly net, net worth analysis. He watches CNBC almost every day, all day. Um, and so he's really on top of these things. And it, to me, when we would have money conversations was very stressful to me. And I have now learned that I don't know why I get so triggered during those conversations. And if I just take it as input versus, you know, an attack of we spent too much this month or we're off our goal over here. Like I took it very personally and I don't know why. <laughs> like we're both spending money. We're both contributing. We're both doing these things, but I took it very personally and I realized that that was actually just my hang up with finances and I would get so stressed out about it that I didn't even want to talk about it. So it's like pulling back from that and being like, okay, the why is because we have all these things to manage for our life and our future. And if we're not having this conversation at least once a month, those things are going to become out of sight. Right. So like now I'm like, oh, okay, this is not any sort of personal attack. This is information and inputs that I can use to make decisions moving forward. And just kind of like pulling back, pulling that stuff out, I think is really important. Oh, girl, you are so not alone. I mean, it's the most taboo topic to have when people are like, yeah, it's taboo to talk about sex. I'm like, no, it's not. Or taboo to talk about politics. No way. Like, I think the only taboos we have left in, our society in the zeitgeist are 
finances, mental health, and fertility. And we can have those other conversations another time, or we've, we've talked about the mental health, and it's really been important to me to say, like, you see me on TV, you see me on the book covers and stuff like that, and I look put together, but inside I wasn't always as put together as I looked. And I think that's the part you can't see. And so when it comes to taboos around finances, yeah, you are so not alone. And I think if it's hysterical, which sounds lovingly, so lovingly, Bethany, like your reaction was, it's probably historical. There's just right. probably something in there that has nothing to do with the conversation you guys had, but just has something to do with like a trauma or a sticking point that you have had in the past that, you know, you need to confront on your own and also together. But it's, it's definitely like, you know, I don't want to say this, it's, it's the number one cause of divorce is finances. Yeah. And I think you know, financial infidelity is huge where you're hiding money from your spouse. And so, yeah, we're hiding loss of money from your spouse, right? Which is happening to some of our community members. Yeah. Interesting. Or like having debt that you don't disclose. There's all sorts of stuff with money. And I think like money, every story goes back to money. If you want to get to the heart of any issue, I really believe you follow the money trail. Yeah. And that's why I think I tried to build a brand that was a sneak attack, like, you know, brand that allowed me to talk about everything because everything goes back to money. You know, your conversation with your husband goes back to money, even though that feels like a relationship conversation. You know, what you're wearing to work, uh, you know, feels like a fashion thing when we used to wear pants, <laughs> you know, but it's a, it's a career discussion too. And, you know, sometimes when talking about this, I needed to put a lot of candy and sugar on some spinach to make it digestible. You know, when I first started into the rich bitch stuff and, and going on and talking about personal finance on mainstream shows, they were like, no, we don't do finance. It's so boring. Like, what are you going to do? Show me a 401k and a spreadsheet. I'm like, no, I'm going to get in somebody's ear and talk them through negotiating their cell phone bill in like a Cyrano type of way. I'm going to have lie detectors for spouses. Like I'm going to do all the things that you find entertaining and are, you know, talk show friendly because money is, it touches everything and we, it doesn't need to be boring, but I think it's, if the success I think I had was just changing the dialogue you know, it didn't necessarily come up with full self-awareness with anything super duper groundbreaking, but I tried to disrupt and I didn't actually know I was doing that at the time, this personal finance space that was like boring and stuffy uh, with the language I used. And so I think the the hardest part is both, you know, not speaking the language and we just don't have a Rosetta Stone for it growing mm-hmm. up. Um, whether you had a good family, not good family, we don't learn it in school. We learn crap in school that we're never going to use, but we don't know how to do a budget or taxes or a business plan or talk to your spouse about money. Like those are way more important things to learn, but we don't. And so having the conversation in the same way as like, you know, we would talk about sexy time or bikini waxes, which is hilarious. Like I'll go to dinner with my girlfriends and they'll tell me all the things. And then I'll be like, what do you make now? Or what is your, what's in your bank account? And it's silent. Yep. silent. And I'm like, lady, you just told me about your lady bits and you will not tell me about this. Like I'm here to help you. Right. I'm not here to, you know, do anything besides that. And I think if we don't know 
It's like pricing your house and not knowing the comp of the area. If you're not talking about it, you're not doing anything about it. Yeah. It's a tough conversation. and That's why I was like, I'll go first. Yeah. And I think it's amazing because it's the the impression that finance is boring. um, You know, it is male dominated. It's I see this, the talking heads like. It's intimidating, but it's so important. And that's what I love about your, your approach and your books that it's so easy to digest. And you feel like it's just somebody who's giving you just the real deal with no filler words of like what, you know, ETFs are that like throw you off. Um, And I'm not saying that a lot of people don't know those things, but for those of us that it doesn't come as naturally in terms of understanding the financial landscape, there is still a responsibility. There is still an opportunity to understand finance for yourself in a way that, like we said, contributes to not only your financial health, but your mental health, and that all of that impacts your physical health. So these things are very intertwined. It's extraordinarily important. Um, I love the work that you do, and I love the way that you've shared with us today how often you've pivoted, how many more times you're likely to pivot. Um, you don't get tied to, you know, well, I've, I've put this one thing out, so I have to be that for everyone. No, you're staying very true to yourself in all of these different stages. And even though we don't know each other for very long, I feel like I know you very well and I'm so happy for you and so happy that you've brought these conversations to light in a way that I think a ton of people can relate with, um, and, and feel seen and feel supported and feel capable. Uh, so it's been really wonderful talking to you. I can't wait to see what your twin babies, uh, (laughs) yeah, let's clarify. (laughs) They're book babies. And by the way, like I haven't figured out, I thought I would have real babies at this point. I'm 36 years old and everybody asks me when I'm going to have kids and it's, you know, I haven't figured that part out. So, you know, while it looks very pretty on the outside, you know, we're all struggling with something. And yeah. so, um, yeah, the next book baby that's out will be, uh, basically rich bitch part two, which is a continuation, um, of how to actually grow your wealth because you can't save and budget your way to wealth as you know. And so yeah. I wanted to like say, okay, you got that in order. Now it's time to actually make it grow, which is a conversation. Yeah, I agree. We, we haven't been having, um, and it's like, if you go to China and you don't speak Chinese, you'll be confused. If you go to wall street or you talk about money and you don't speak the language, you'll be confused. It's okay, but you can learn it. It's like yeah, how many times yeah. do we complain about it versus how many times do we do something about it? You know, this is what pisses me off the most is because like, how many times will you complain or hear your friends complain about it, but like actually pick up a book and read something like spend the same amount of time that you would have spent researching a vacation and put that into like learning financial literacy and you know we we have to put in some work it's not you know magical but I think every um you know everybody at every level I've seen whether they work in financial services is confused about something you know, and I think that even CEOs that I'd have on my show on CNBC would be like, what is that QE2 thing? And I'm like, dude, it's a bond buyback program. Like, no big deal. He's like, okay, I get the, <laughs> I get the concept, but I didn't know the jargon. So I think it's the jargon yeah. that keeps us away. It's like equities are rising, stocks are rising. That's all it means. 
yeah. EBITDA. Exactly. Like it's just profits. Like, it's all I good. Hate, I hate that acronym. It just does not roll off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, thank you again for your candor and for your time and for everything that you're doing. And I can't wait to see the next book come out. And that evolution, I think, is really important. It's almost like this roadmap that, you know, men and women can take along with them on their journeys. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah, men too. Like, you know, and I keep talking your ear off because I'm so excited about this, but like men can read it too with with books and with anything in media as you know you can't be all things to all people or nothing to anyone so like I needed to pick that audience and yeah yeah but I think I think that's you know we talk a lot about allyship and and the importance of um empathy and I think by engaging in some of these conversations is really how a lot of men get ideas of how they can have more influence or just more understanding of some of the struggles that women go through that are just inherently different. Amen, sister. Well, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. My gosh, pleasure is all mine. I feel like I had monologues, like my my Google, I was going to say TED Talks, but now my Google Talk is over. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget to jump over to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please leave a review to give us direct feedback and also to get the podcast in front of more eyes. It's very much appreciated. Do I keep going?